Are you ready to go, Matt? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Just kind of crack into it. Sounds great. All right. Welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education. I'm your host, Luke Callier, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Yes, he's back from his accident last week. Looking forward to having him on today's show. And today's guest is Fiona Johnston, who's been principal at St. Hilda's Anglican School for Girls in Perth for the past three years. And prior to this, had a significant stint in Singapore at the Australian International School. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversations. As am I. Now, we always like to start with a little bit of a background about yourself and your journey in education. Gosh, where do I start? Um, I'm obviously at St Hilda's at the moment in in about my 30th year of education, but I've had an incredible um, career and journey and education has just continued to deliver on opportunities for me, commencing from a regional school out in Mount Isa through uh, the Queensland Department of Education, all the way through to a girls' grammar school in Buckinghamshire, England for seven years, um, a large international school in Singapore for seven years, a few years in between all that in Melbourne, and really experience across all boys, all girls, co-ed, faith-based, non-denominational. Yeah, really, really broad experience. And... Was there any specific experiences during that journey that led you to want to be a leader? Look, so many, but I was one of those really interesting children that loved school. And I had an incredible um, headmistress, we called her at the time, uh, when I was uh, starting my journey through a school in Brisbane. And she got up on the very first assembly and said, girls can do anything. And so she had my attention straight away. And unfortunately, she's now passed away, but she was an incredibly inspiring woman and I kind of decided about the age of 10 that I wanted to be a school principal. Very early. Very, very early. I didn't think I'd get there necessarily but um, it was something that I aspired to because the impact that she had on my life and in conversations with uh, other, uh, you know, past um, school friends on their lives has just been significant. So it was a position that I saw very early on where you could make a difference in the lives of people. Fiona, it's really interesting that, you know, you talk about know, being inspired at such a young age and as you've moved in, I guess, in your leadership journey, I wonder if there there have been people along that journey that have also created uh, that, that level of aspiration for you and inspired you um, to, the, to, to be the leader that you are today. Yeah, there has been so many, but not necessarily people that have been in leadership positions. You know, I have to say that I've learned as much from a first-year teacher or a trainee teacher in the space of leadership or, in fact, even from some of the students that I've taught as well as obviously from people that I've worked under. So I think inspiration in the context of a school and in reference to leadership, it just surrounds us daily. I could do an address and assembly on leadership that I've seen from you know a year five class, as much as I could share stories about leadership um, practices and characteristics that I've learned from, from you know people that have been in the industry for a long, long time. So I think the secret there is to not assume that leadership always needs to come from above. One of the first things I did in moving to St Hilda's was to go out to my staff to ask for a mentor under 30 that uh, would be interested in in mentoring me each week so that I could get an insight of, you know, different generational thinking and, you know, have that sounding board from somebody who thinks a little bit differently to me. And I was inundated with applications and when I cross-checked some birth dates with HR, there was not one staff member under 30 that had not applied for the position. 
So that really sent a strong message that, you know, you don't need to always look at age and wisdom and experience to find good leadership learning. And I guess during that journey, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about your first leadership role? And, mm. um, and you know, how do you think you stood out yeah, during that time? It's a really, really good question. And look, probably for many of the listeners, I went along that traditional pathway of, you know, a subject coordinator, head of year, head of department, head of performing arts, an assistant principal role, you know, the pretty much typical ladder that, you, that um, you know, principals tend to go on. But there was some leadership positions that were really crucial um, and I think positioned me well for where I wanted to get myself. And one of those was overseeing operations at uh, the Australian International School in Singapore. There I was gifted with the opportunity of creating a timetable for, you know, 3,000 students in a transient um, with a transient population. And I probably went into the role with Timetabling 101 and felt like I came out with a PhD in timetabling. But I remember at the time, my principal said that uh, timetabling is the backbone of the school. It's your resourcing, it's your headcount, it's your budget, it's everything. And I didn't really know what that meant until I undertook that process. And so through that, I really learnt the business side of schools and how, you know, the, the way a timetable can have significant impacts on, on resourcing and costing and budgets. Yeah, so that was a significant learning. And while I didn't have direct accountability for one specific person or a small team of people, I had responsibility across everybody to deliver on that. Mm. That's not a bad segue, um, you know, Fiona, in terms of, of getting to know the business of schools. Um, is that experience that you've had in an international schooling uh, setting? I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a bit of a, I guess, a, a compare and contrast of of international sort of schooling experience versus perhaps uh, an experience in an Australian school. What are the, what are those real markers of difference, um, you know, good and bad, I suppose? Yeah, significant learning curve. Um, I think the pace and the speed with which international schools roll is like something you've never seen before and anybody who's got the ability to adapt and, and adjust and, you know, be agile and all those key COVID words as we've all pivoted in society. Um, that's just the reality of everyday life in an international school. The school that I worked for was a for-profit school. So I was very much exposed um, at my level to the business side of the school and I had full accountability for running the senior campus, which was year six through to year 12. And the school was one of um, a global collection of schools. So there were 72 schools across the world. And so I got opportunities to engage in the business side of, of schools at a, at a much higher level than I would never have had exposure to had I, had I remained in Australia. Um, the biggest advantage, I would have to say, um, in working internationally is that all of a sudden you're forced to open your eyes to something broader than your reality because you're working with teachers from all around the world and you're working with children from all around the world. So your cultural intelligence, you know, takes off <laughs> like it's never taken off before. And everybody brings with them exceptional leading practice. And so you're in this melting pot of educational ideas and philosophies and new insights. And you just feel that geographically you're on the cusp of it all. And it's very easy to not be looking or benchmarking internationally when you live in, you know, gorgeous places like Perth, 
because it's such a place where you can be really comfortable and you can look sideways or you can benchmark against some like schools down the road. But we need to think bigger and broader than that because there's so much cool stuff happening at that international level that we can learn from in all Australian schools. It's interesting that you say it's a for-profit school. Now, in Australia, I know that Matt and I have actually done a bit of research in this, and there's very few for-profit schools in Australia. Um, and, you know, having come out of a little bit of a background of aged care where, you know, to me it's really interesting around when it's for-profit um, and you start talking about margins, the difference in a, in a 5% margin to an 8% margin to a 10% margin and what the difference is you can provide either for care or for education with the difference in that margin is obviously quite interesting. Mm. I wonder whether there's anything you can kind of um, shine a light on in terms of your experience there around understanding if it's for profit, how you're managing that. Mm. It's a completely different mindset and philosophy. And I have to confess that many people that work for those sorts of organisations can have, you know, in, internal turmoil over that because... It's a real challenge. Schools, business, absolutely. And look, I certainly had my thoughts on it, but what I have to be incredibly grateful for was the opportunity that it opened for me to learn about the business of education. And I don't think I'd be able to do what I do at St Hilda's if I hadn't had that foresight. And I'd say it's the biggest area where principles tend to be lacking because that part of your portfolio just doesn't exist in a deputy role. So I'm really grateful for the experience as a leader in a for-profit school and the investment that you can, that those schools can afford to spend on their staff because of the global scale. Um, you know, it's, it's mass in itself just is, is an absolute gift. You know, the schools itself can run conferences that don't need to open up to other schools because there's already 72 of them, for example. And we were marinated in professional learning opportunities. So from a growth perspective, it was exceptional, really exceptional. And I miss that. It's much harder to get that and COVID hasn't helped that as well. But from the business side, that's where I learned so much. And I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Tiana, you were talking there, um, you know, just previously about, you know, I guess some of the opportunities that come with working in an international environment and, you know, global competency and, and you know, cultural competency and the, and the like. Have there, have there been, I guess, um, I guess innovations or initiatives that you've seen in an international context that we'd be well advised to look at in an Australian one? Oh, look, many. I guess one that stands out particularly is we um, at the Australian International School ran a professional learning program called TIGS, which was Teacher Inquiry Groups. And when you joined the school, you were placed into a professional community uh, in an area that you were interested in. And it really broke down the borders of all the English faculty working together and all the maths faculty working together because depending on your interest, you could find yourself in a professional learning group with a kindergarten teacher and an art specialist and a chemistry teacher. Um, so already the conversations around the table have changed because it's universal, particularly in secondary schools, for staff to remain um, in silos and to not think outside their discipline area. 
So by changing the people around the table, of course, that then changes the conversations. But what the TIG program allowed everybody in the school to do was to step up and lead in the area of professional learning. So we talked a lot about not necessarily the professional development that you've attended, but the professional development that you led. And it was an expectation at some time in your journey at the Australian International School in Singapore that you would be facilitating a TIG group. And some of those TIG leaders were first-year teachers and others were 30 years. So again, you had young, experienced, and they, of course, bring energy and hope and enthusiasm and, you know, you'll try anything when you're a 2020, you know, 22-year-old graduate and you've got nothing to lose. Um, so that really mixed up the conversations. And often from that TIG program where the whole school would come together and they would cycle it around so that you then chose your learnings for the day and you would go and have sort of 20 minutes at all of these sessions... So you could pick areas of choice, but many of those then went on to educational journal articles, presenting globally. So it was great for the staff, but also great for the school. And the learning outcomes associated with the TIG programs were directly linked with improving student outcomes. So it was really rich data, evidence-based research, and it was just a joy to see it. I mean, we had a scale of 450 staff and 10 each in a professional learning community. So you can just imagine the type of topics that came out of it from, you know, why year three NAPLAN boys' writing is lower. How do we engage English as a second language in year nine biology subjects? It was really, really specific and really, really detailed the areas that we researched. So, yeah, we were able to create a professional learning culture by sharing the expertise that we had on campus and I don't think schools do that enough. It's really easy to put somebody on a plane or somebody to take the day off and go on to a conference. And what they bring back is usually fairly minimal because there's no time to actually hand it on. We're having conversations at the moment about that exact thing at St Hilda's. We've got this incredible expertise with our staff. So how can we look to really um, take advantage of that and to also boost the confidence and remind our teachers that they're exceptionally skilled at what they do and they have a craft and they've got something to learn. You don't need to look too far to pick up some little tricks and trades around educational practices and improving what we do in the classroom. That was a long answer to a quick question. Sorry about that. No, but absolutely fantastic and, and really exciting about, you know, around that, that, that idea of, of, you know, collaborative uh, communities um, and, and that concept of, of leadership being very much a, a shared one and a distributed one, no matter where you sit in the organisation, and that we can just learn so much from from our, you know, each other. That it's not about, um, you know, traditional notions of silos in schools, mm-hmm. um, and it's you know what you've just described is a great vehicle uh, to, to breaking down those silos and really encouraging rich, uh, rich discourse. Yeah. Look, and I would even apply that theory at a broader level in my executive team. I have. One, two, three, four. I have four, no, five, five non-teachers that do not have an educational background, deliberately. It's it's valuable. (laughs) Yeah. That's quite a ballsy move in a school. I've absolutely got educators on there as well, but it's a good 50-50 split because what we can learn from outside industry and the skills and expertise that need to be around an executive table, given the way that schools roll and you know, the, the scale of the businesses, you know, you're a $40 million business. I need people around the table that are going to be able to 
lead and manage in that space. And bringing people in from industry has just changed the conversations at the table. Um, our most recent appointment was somebody from Curtin University, and she's been exceptional. It's opened our eyes to what's happening, you know, in the walls beyond St Hilda's. So I think, yeah, breaking down all sorts of silos and just saying, well, why? Why do we have to do it this way? Absolutely. I just want to, uh, to end our kind of conversation around the international uh, part of it. I guess Matt and I have both done international stints at, at, at different times. I, I guess I'm interested in what drove you to want to take, you know, your career internationally. It's not necessarily something that many educators do. You don't see it on a lot of resumes and you know how valuable that's been to you. I think you've articulated that already, but you know your recommendations for other younger leaders or, or people earlier in their careers. Yeah, look, if we didn't have the challenges of COVID, I would be the first one to say, get a backpack on and go. Uh, you know, a teaching qualification qualification can take you around the world. Um, what I have learnt, not just professionally but personally as well through those experiences, has just been incredible. My Seven years in the UK was spent at a girls' grammar school and that was a fascinating experience. And for anyone that's worked in the UK, you'll know that um, some of the boroughs have this 11-plus exam and if the kids do really, really well, they get an offer. So you end up in schools with incredibly bright children but from a huge socioeconomic collection and I absolutely loved that because I could have absolute extreme, someone from a housing commission home right up to, you know, dad's top London, you know, skin doctor, whatever it is. Um, and so I loved working there. And um, the education system in the UK in some ways, you know, is, is leading the way in many areas. So particularly around, you know, data tracking. I mean, 20 years ago, the things that we were doing with student data um, over at um, in Buckinghamshire, schools are just tapping into now. You know, you wouldn't get a job in the UK 20 years ago without being able to talk about value added and having data behind you to support that. You can still get away with that here mm. in Australia. Mm. So I learnt so much from, from my experience there and then Singapore just took it to a whole new level. But to be honest, the UK was pretty much an, um, a, a visa thing. Uh, you had to go before you turned 27 and I think it was a month before and I jumped on a plane with my husband and off we went. And a two-year work visa ended up being seven years. And Singapore, I actually moved because my husband had a job opportunity. And initially, I was a little reluctant to go, to be honest. But as soon as I got there and I got into the school, I absolutely loved it. And it was seven wonderful years. Well, Fiona, it's probably time to, to I guess, delve a little bit more deeply, I guess, into, into the role of um, principalship. And, and, and I'm absolutely dying to ask you this question. Um, you know, we, we're seeing a, a small but growing number of, um, you know, musicians and people from the performing arts moving into positions of leadership and and uh, and principalship. What do you think are, are the advantages of, of people like yourself? Um, you know, moving into these types of positions with very very different um, backgrounds, and what might be some of the sort of the blind spots you might have and that you need to be aware of. Do you know, I'm so pleased you referenced the arts because it's not often that you will see, um, you know, people going into headship with areas around drama or music or dance or, or whatever it may be. And I actually read a very interesting article many, many years ago that tapped into the thinking behind that. And one of the, the areas that was mentioned in this report, and I wish I could remember the name of it, but I can't, but it lingered with me because I've got an arts background. And it was around the point that often... Um, headship 
tends to go to people in the sciences or the humanities or the English or mathematics because very often in people's careers, they're managing larger teams at a younger age. So if you're getting to the stage of a head of department by say 27, 28, you might have 15 in your team where the arts is typically a lot smaller in permanent staff, but then of course you might have 20 peripatetic. So that was one of the conclusions why they thought that, that you know, fewer people in the arts went went on to positions. So it is a fascinating area. And um, I have found a few out there that have got backgrounds in these areas. And in some ways, we do bring some skills that I think sit nicely in headship. Some, t- some of those might include, um, we tend to be fairly extrovert in our nature. And the ability for principals to connect with community is obviously a number one thing. Uh, we're confident in the space of getting up on a stage and addressing at short notice because we're used to performing in ensembles and solos, so there's no fear associated with that. Um, we come with curiosity and creativity, and that's why we've been drawn to those sorts of subject areas. So I think when you bring an arts background, whichever area in the arts it is, to an executive table and to the position of headship, you instantly start coming at those conversations with a really creative mindset and, uh, you know, how do we make that better? What can we do better? Something that Matt and I have talked about before is sometimes, and and other principals have actually talked about this on the podcast, is that sometimes that feeling of being a bit of an imposter in your first couple of years or your first year of being a principal, having not been one before. I wonder whether there's anything you can kind of, is that something that you felt or did you feel comfortable straight away as you were appointed into the role? Yeah, look, it's funny because that comes up a lot when people talk about women in leadership, but I don't think it's a gender thing. I think we all have that. And I think whether you're first year in the role or you're 10 years in the role, it's this little kind of thing that sits on your shoulder. Um, yeah, we talk a lot about it with the girls as well. Look, yes, you, you do go into these things going, gosh, really? Am I in this position? And um, you're reminded when everyone looks at you for an answer on something or you need to make a call. Oh, that's right, I'm the principal. And you have those moments that you forget. But I think you do get more comfortable in the role and your confidence grows. And so I don't suffer from that as much anymore now. But certainly in my journey, absolutely, absolutely. It's human nature, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's usually a point where you kind of, something happens and you're like, oh, I've got this. Yeah. Was there a moment for you where you Yeah, you felt in that? fact, I used those exact words at a staff meeting on Wednesday when we welcomed staff back and we were talking about 2022, the year that we all know has been coming, and sort of reflected on how we had responded to COVID over the last two years and the huge amount of planning that's in place. And I said, you know, despite the challenges that all educators are facing um, in this landscape, Um, let's focus on the opportunities. And we spent a lot of time talking about that and really concluded with, you know, we've got this. And I reassured staff, and I guess a reassurance to me as well, when we sent um, comms out earlier in the week in regards to our, you know, future response to COVID, um, I didn't receive any emails back. And that to me says, we've got the trust of our community um, and they know that we are able to adapt and respond and put the learning outcomes of our kids first. So I'm feeling quite comfortable in that space, but as soon as I say that, something's going to take me by surprise, isn't it? <laughs> never say never. Um, right. and, and Fiona, you know, you've, you've been in this role for an, a, a couple of years now and you've sort of talked about, you know, that transition. Um, but, uh, you know, what, how might you describe the type of principle that you are? I mean, we, we've heard some principles sort of describe themselves as, you know, the visionary and 
um, they're taking care of you know tomorrow while they've got other people taking care of today and the like. How might you describe the way you go about principalship and 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 maintaining or attempting to to tackle what is an impossible job description? <laughs> I know was it ten pages long or something like that. Um, look, I would say moving into the role of principal, you have to come at it with a really different mindset. I see my role as leading leaders, and that's different to being a leader. I've got eight people on my exec team who are incredibly high performing, incredibly competent, and I have absolute faith in their ability to deliver on their portfolios. So leading leaders is really what I need to do. And I remind myself that of that all the time. And I keep them to remind me of that. And if they see me slipping into that, because it's very easy to move into that operational space, especially if you think, oh, I've got a great idea there, or I've, I've done that and that didn't work or whatever it was. And uh, ensuring that you stay in that strategic place. But I would say, hands down, the most important thing is to have a really, really clear vision for where you are at this moment in time, but more importantly, where you want to be. And we talk in about 2030 at St Hilda's at our exec table. In fact, we don't put anything on the exec agenda that's got 2022 at the start. We've got other committees and forums to be dealing with that. And I asked my exec team to hold me accountable for that because as the chair of that, I obviously own the agenda. And it's really easy to fall back into that operational mode and start talking about the present. So I will actually date conversations and decisions and information to be shared with a, this is a 2023 conversation, this is a 2025 conversation and so forth. And I'm fortunate to have two committees that sit um, reporting into exec. One of those is obviously the senior school leadership team on our Bayview campus and our junior school leadership team. And that's where all the operational work takes place. And something that we talked about off air before we started the interview was around this, the leadership of the community and how important that is as a, as a principal. And, and, you know, I'm wondering whether you can share how much of your role or your time do you, do you kind of allocate to leading the community more broadly? Yeah. I was going to say that'd be the, the third, but in no particular order, important thing. Leadership presence is everything. I take at least two and a half hours each morning across the week. I've got four entrance points at the school, two on the senior, two on the junior, and I'm present from 8 to 8.30. And I've noticed and seen the relationship change with parents doing drop-off. Initially, it started with them, you know, checking out the window and trying to, you know, check me out and who's she and what's her, you know, what's she all about. Um, and a few weeks later, um, I got the wave. Oh, next connection. Yep. Give it another term. I've got the windows winding down. Good morning, Fiona. But equally important to that is meeting and greeting the girls. So it's so easy for girls or any student really to be dropped off with their headphones in, you know, head down and off they go. We greet them all and we encourage eye contact and good morning, how are you? And I think it's a simple, soft skill that's incredibly important. Um, I try to be it as much as I can. You obviously can't be at everything because there's days when there's three or four things on at the same time. But I will always pass on my thoughts. So I've got a great relationship with my two deputies and we will always, after welcoming, doing our welcome um, or acknowledgement to country, we'd say, you know, Mrs Johnston sends her thoughts. Currently she's down on the junior school at a music concert, but she wishes you all the very best. And I equally do the same. So we make sure we acknowledge um, a few words 
so that parents are aware that we know it's on, we still are interested, but they appreciate the challenge. But leadership presence is significant. You and, cannot underestimate that. And one of the things Matt and I have often talked about is how do you know when enough is enough? You know, in terms of being present or According in terms of parents, being According to parents, they would say never. Correct. <laughs> they never. want you to be at everything. <laughs> um, look, there's many ways you can manage that profile. I mean, there's social media now, um, you know, to help share and anytime I'm somewhere, I, you know, I take a photo and I make sure I've got some girls in it and things like that. Um, and look, it's probably one of my challenges because I will sacrifice many things to make sure that I am present because I genuinely want to be there for the girls. Um, but it's really hard, especially if you've got kids of your own and you're, you know, juggling everything else. And, and Fiona, you know, we've, um, you know, we've heard a lot about just, just the, um, you know, just the, the, the workload uh, of expectation and, and the burden of responsibility um, on, a, on, a, on a leader such as yourself and, and those competing demands, particularly when you consider, um, you know, you do have a life outside school, you know, you're not just a, just a principal. Um, what are the things that you do that to, to sustain you, I guess, in the role? Do, do principals have a life outside of school? I'm not sure, Matt. No, look, look, we don't, or I don't, but I'm actually okay with that and not many people will confess to that. I actually love work and I love who I am at work and when I come to work, I'm just bringing me. So I got, a really, I got asked a really interesting question in my interview and towards the end when I was going for the role and they said, look, we've had a great opportunity to learn about the professional Fiona. Can you tell us about the personal Fiona? And I said, well, it's the one thing. It's so encompassing, the role of a, of a principal, and it's a vocation at heart that you do in many, many ways give your all. So every day for me in some ways is work. <laughs> that might sound really unhealthy, but I'm actually okay with it. There's things that I do and I take time out if I need to and, you know, I watch a bit of trashy TV late at night and things like that. I do really love that, you know, Ladies of London. <laughs> waiting for the next season um but I genuinely love what I do so it's not about hours and it's not about a job and I've got an incredibly supportive um husband and kids and they just know that's that's mum and that's her role um mm. so yeah the work-life balance I'm terrible at but I also am someone who I just don't tend to get worn out by it because I love it so much yeah. it's that notion of um not work-life balance, but work-life integration is what I'm, I'm hearing, that it's one of the same, um, that there's, there's, there's almost a false dichotomy between there's the work life and there's the personal life and there's work balance and, and the like. Does yeah. that resonate with Absolutely. And you're always you. I can't go and get a takeaway coffee on a Saturday without somebody recognising me from St Hilda's. So while I'm not at work, I still am in some ways because I'm still the principal of St Hilda's and if they're a parent, they'll expect me to say hello or the kids say hi. And so you're always on. You can't go to a restaurant without being identified. But again, I'm okay with that because I genuinely enjoy the company of my community and, and I'm interested in knowing who they are at school and outside. So I think a curiosity in people generally and I think having those really positive partnerships just makes the journey such a more successful one because they really feel like there is that sense of belonging. And I'll often say to parents, you know, you're not just joining us for six years and it's not just your daughter. Once you're part of the powder blue, you're part of the powder blue. And that networking is, is a really important part. 
So I'm lucky that I, I do enjoy that and it probably works to my advantage that I get quite energised by connecting with people and, um, you know, and, and truly enjoying those conversations. And something that we often talk about with principals is their relationship with the council and in particular the chair of the council. So I wonder whether there's anything you can share about, you know, how you've found your relationship with the chair and the council and, and how that's developed over, the, over your journey so far. Yeah, and it's such a new thing for principals because you've only ever reported to the principal. And so there's this world that lives on top of principles that no one sees because a principal obviously sits on a finance committee and a governance committee and council and foundation and infrastructure and grounds. So there's this job that kind of sits up in the clouds that takes place early morning and late afternoon and no one in your school community sees you in that role or in that context. So it was such a learning for me coming into the role. I've been incredibly blessed with um, my council chair and my and my broader council. Uh, my council chair moved into her role six months before um, I started, and I think she was three weeks into the position when she found out she had to recruit a principal. So she felt probably violently ill about that responsibility. And uh, having been through the process, I now see how that um, was such an accountability for her to get it right. Here was I, nervous on the other side, but it, there was equally the same amount of pressure on her to get it right. So there was an instant connection. And when I went through the interview process, I put a lot of my thinking and waiting around how I felt that I would be able to work with her. She's been nothing short of exceptional. And we meet once a week and obviously at all our council meetings, but she's an incredible mentor to me and the best sounding board I could have. Completely non-judgmental, and I know that I have her support in everything that I do. So I've been blessed. I have heard horror stories where that relationship isn't quite the same, so I'm really fortunate that I'm not in that position. And, you know, it's it's a tricky one because council chairs change. Um, it's usually someone within council that steps up into that role. So I feel I've got a really positive relationship with all the other council members, but I can see how problems can absolutely come out of sudden changes or a misalignment. Um, and that would be really difficult to handle because it is a different partnership that you're managing. And has it been a challenge to understand what things you want to communicate with her? you know, and what she doesn't need to know about. Yeah, because as a, as a new principal, you probably share too much because you're not sure, sure what you should and what you shouldn't. Um, what has helped me in that space most recently is doing the Australian Directors course. And I'm really pleased that I've done the course three years in because I've gone into the course with some experience under my belt. Had I gone into the course having not sat in my position as a CEO reporting to a board, I would have gone in in such a naive way and it would have been a bit more of a textbook experience. But having had three years and being able to see around a board table how the dynamics work and how things roll and the expectations and conversations around risk and governance and compliance and performance, that's been the steepest learning curve because that you don't get to experience until you're actually in this position. And in fact, no one really talks about it either when you're chatting to other principals. It's this dark secret and you probably have this... It's the have dark these, arts it's the of dark principalship. Arts, isn't it? And you've got these, these... Which is why we have these conversations. Yeah. Exactly See, it's not like that. Yeah, it's not like that at all. And, you know, I remember being a um, being an employee at middle level and, you know, they'd say the council or the board, oh, my God, 
there were these big scary people and do they rule the school and they're going to come in and sack us all. You have no idea about this secret body. And then when you meet them, they're actually really lovely people and they've got the skills and experience in the context at St Hilda's to be on that, to be on that board. So it breaks down a whole pile of misunderstandings. But that fear is still there. If I say to my, because my exec will report, because I say to them it's good learning and I want to get you some board exposure and so, you know, prepare something on whatever their portfolio is and, you know, they'll step up because there's that, oh, it's the board. <laughs> this is a mystery, board, secret darkness. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, Fiona, one of the things we do here on EdLeaders is to always apply a, a futurist lens, if you like. Um, and so I'd be really curious to know what, where you believe education is going uh, in the next five years and, and what do you think principals need to, to have their eye on as we prepare for, for the future? Mm. It might be longer having knowing that she looks at 2030. <laughs> so it might be eight years, Matt. <laughs> oh, that's right. Look, my theory... I was, keep it, I was trying to keep it confined because I just thought if I open up too much, this is like a three-episode arc right here. <laughs> it so is, isn't it? Look, I always say disrupt or be disrupted and we are going to be disrupted we already have been um you know when i was talking to my staff on wednesday we couldn't think of another career globally where the craft has been you know disrupted to the same level that teaching has the art of what many of our teachers have done for 10 20 30 years is moving to a completely new landscape and that's significant for many long-serving staff members. And I absolutely applaud the way that teachers around the world have been able to adapt. So I think evolving is going to be absolutely key and a commitment to evolving, knowing that, you know, you're not going to be right up here as an A-plus player immediately, but we need to see improvements in that. I know more today than I did yesterday. And a commitment to evolve. In fact, evolve is so big in our thinking that it's one of our pillars in St Hilda's Reimagined. So a commitment to what went well even better if and can I be better tomorrow than I am today. And I think you really need that visionary thinking at the at the top level because schools that do not evolve are going to find themselves in incredibly dirty, dirty. I just created that word, but it was a good one. Like it was a visual, it. wasn't it? Yeah. See, the creativity's yeah. coming like out. Dirty waters. Um, because they won't be able to be sustainable. Nobody wants to invest in an education for their child, that's not forward thinking. And I think the biggest challenge where that sits is for schools that are 125 years old because we're very, very comfortable with the way that we've done things. And we're usually doing very well for this moment in time. But we have to prepare or disrupt or be disrupted. That's, that's my theory. That's a massive change of mindset, you know, because we talk a lot about 21st century learners and what our kids need but we don't spend enough time talking about what a 21st century teacher looks like. And that's a whole different conversation with staff because if we don't change the staff, then how are we going to expect different outcomes for the kids? So... What's, what's interesting about that is that we know that, that in the corporate world and in, in, in industry, um, they're used to this sort of mantra of, of disruption, you know, or you know, you know, disrupt or be disrupted. And it's quite curious that, that education just doesn't seem to be a frontier that can embrace that. Uh, as easily. What do you think that is? We're just embedded with these structures that just cripple decision making. That's the reality. We run schools from 8.30 to 3.30. Why? Why do we do that? We've asked that before. Yeah. 
Why do we do that? Um, you know, we have timetables that haven't had creative thought and about w what's possible. I mean, schools are getting more creative in that space now. Um, you know, this idea that structure supports strategy is just a new conversation in school. But it's the first thing. When I came in in 2019 and I thought about St Hilda's reimagined and I came in with good ideas or some, some strong ideas in that space but still took my community through an 18-month process, I knew before I even started what structure I needed and what skills I needed on the table to be able to deliver on the outcomes for where I wanted to take St Hilda's. And that's really hard for a community to go through because sometimes it's not that a person's not fantastic at what they do, but the landscape's changed and we actually need a different skill. And in a school context, you cannot keep adding headcount. It just doesn't work like that. And so I think schools have been really disrupted in the last few years. Um, look, I think it'll settle again in the next few years, but I think it's never gonna be, you know, what do they say, the change is never gonna be this slow again. And you can feel it in a school, you really can. I think something that um, we've talked about previously is the arms race of some independent schools in, in acquiring XYZ buildings or what they're building out as new infrastructure. But I guess what I'm hearing you say there is it's more about the teaching aspect and what it looks like on a day-to-day -day basis, which will form the basis of what education or a day for a student might look like in 2030. Can you kind of elaborate on your thinking there? Yeah, we've got to start looking beyond four walls. You know, it's such a closed mindset to think we've got to have 25 kids in a classroom with a teacher, heaven forbid, putting a 26 kid in there. I mean, seriously, there's so many other options that we can explore. And I think schools can fall into the trap of having something that's big and bright. But what it actually comes down to is relationships. And I would say that that's one of the secret sources at St Hilda's is that relationship and that trust and that psychological safety where kids can actually learn. And it's so much more important than the actual buildings. And I had the opportunity many, many years ago to work as a, um, as a consultant in Queensland. And one of the jobs that I needed to do was to look at the music extension program across years 11 and 12. And I picked the absolute extremes of schools from one of the poorest schools, government schools on the outskirts of Cairns, um, right through to, you know, top tier school, 35 grand a year, so forth guess where I found the better teaching on that particular day at that particular time, you know, literally in a hut with a xylophone as opposed to, an you know, a concert hall and so forth. So I think you can never, ever judge a school by its buildings and the gloss. You have to absolutely dig deeper to see what that culture is and what learning looks like. And I think sometimes the challenge is for parents and, well, and schools is how do you articulate that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes the, the parents see a number or they see the glossy brochure or they see the buildings and they think, that's what it is, yeah. that's what I want to buy. But I think what you're describing there is actually what's more meaningful. Absolutely. Some, it's sometimes challenging to articulate that in, it a, really in a marketing is. campaign. And I think schools are still really small-minded in their thinking that, you know, we have to have a performing arts centre and we have to have a pool and we have to have things when there's a school 500 metres down the road with the exact same. So why aren't we being sensible with these resources? Why aren't we centralising things like HR across all the Anglican independent schools? It's just better business models. But we all sit in these little silos running these operations on these campuses 
when it just doesn't make sense. And, you know, we were chatting before the, the podcast started around, um, you know, a partnership that St Hilda's just has just recently signed with Scotch in the space of rowing. And we were talking about how expensive rowing programs are. So if one school rows in one season and one school rows in another, why aren't we actually utilising that facility um, for more to enjoy, to open up opportunities for community to be engaged with it and looking at models that are just far more efficient and, yeah, we need to step out because we still think independently as schools and not cashing in on And we're still picture. so siloed, like you mentioned. Still we're still so siloed. siloed. And I think one of the, you know, Matt and I talk about this, but there are, one of the reasons we like to interview people like yourself is because we get siloed into only hearing from your own principal. Yes, And it's so interesting true. to hear from other principals, you know, for our own leadership growth. Yeah. Matt? Yeah, Fiona, I, I guess this is, you know, so good to hear about the way you sort of think and, your systems thinking, your, in your, your creative thinking and the like. And uh, I'm, I'm really interested, you know, as you reflect on, you know, this sort of short period of time you've been a, a principal, what's been the most, you know, I guess, proudest moment or achievement so far? Wow. How do I pick one? Look, there's so many Okay. Stories. I'm happy to extend it to three, but I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to tap it to that. Look, there's so many memorable stories. Can I share one or two? So yeah, one of the things when I came into St Hilda's, I looked at the way that our scholarship program works and I started questioning, well, why were scholarships initially set up and is the purpose of the scholarship still aligned with why they originally evolved? And they're very different to bursaries. So scholarships, you know, a child joins in year seven and goes through and I kept asking, but are these needs based? Because the, the, the origin behind bringing a, um, a scholarship into place is to be able to support um, a girl who's going to embrace the opportunities at St Hilda's but would never have typically been able to afford it. So we really went back to our grassroots as part of our 125 conversations and I had the opportunity to interview um, a number of girls that had applied and a, one girl came our way and she just blew me away and she caught two buses to come to Mosman Park. She'd never heard of the school. In fact, she didn't even have internet at home and she looked up the details at um, a local library via a A4 piece of paper that we had sent to the government schools, uh, knowing that these families probably aren't watching us on socials and would miss that opportunity. And she arrived and she's been the most deserving recipient and I will never forget that phone call that I made when I rang her and said that you are the successful recipient. Oh, look, I've got goosebumps just telling I've the story I've got them as well. Now. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I tell so you, cool. it has changed this girl's life forever. She is absolutely shining. She's embraced music. She's embraced drama. She would be in the top five in all of her um, subject areas. Everywhere I look, she's just glowing. And it has changed her life. She was working at a year nine level across most of her core subjects while she was in year six. And her junior, her primary school teachers were saying, we don't know how to stretch her anymore. So that's a real success story because as a principal, you can make those decisions and you can make those realities happen. And a second story, these are quite all the emotional ones, but they're the stories that you remember is part yeah, of, part of it, This is a gorgeous one. As part of our 125th, we invited back an old scholar called Vivian. Now, Vivian graduated in the war years and she was invited to cut the cake and um, she just got everybody's attention with her story about how scared she was to leave school and that she'd been evacuated. And one of the things that she finished off in her story was the fact that she had to surrender her prefect badge 
because at the end of the year, the school was so poor that she received a letter from the headmistress asking her if she could donate her badge back. And she was devastated because she thought the badge was for her to keep. So we actually invited her back to an assembly and 79 years after graduating, we presented her with her Fitzroy Prefect badge and there were tears everywhere. And it just was a moment in time that it it reminded me of the legacy of a school and the number of graduates that we have impacted and touched their hearts and souls. And here she was all these years later with such incredible memories of the school. And so there was that historical reflection. So they're they're probably my my moments, emotional moments from last year that I will remember forever. Extraordinary. Mm. And as we kind of close out, we're going to get to our quick fire five, which is usually six or seven that no one ever listens to I promise me to one. around. Um, I guess the last question I have is, what advice would you have for aspiring school leaders before we get to the quick fire five? Stay focused, stay committed, um, have a plan. No one cares about your career as much as you do. Uh, find a really good sponsor. And that's different to a mentor and it's different to a coach. It's someone who will help open up those opportunities for you. And don't be afraid to do it because of all the horror stories that you hear. It is the most rewarding job ever. And I wouldn't swap it for a minute. And the joy that it brings me and the satisfaction that I go home with every single day, despite all the challenges, just enriches my life beyond belief. And it's an absolute privilege to work with the girls and the staff at St Hilda's. I love it. I love that question. All right, quick five five. Here we go. One word or idea that comes to mind. Uh, One trait all leaders must have. Vision. One word to describe your perfect executive team. Alignment. One measure of a strong school culture. Growth. What does student success look like to you? Individualised. One book worth reading. Good to great, Jim Collins. Read it again and again. Love that book. And who would you like to hear us interview on the podcast? I would say retired principal Andrew Syme, retired principal from Scotch. He's an incredible mentor and um, is working with many principals in this space and has a lot to, lot to share. Matt, that might be a record. I think that she stuck to the rules. I like rules. <laughs> the only person who had stuck to the rules absolutely nailed it. <laughs> Do I get class. extra marks for that? Full marks, extra marks, Full top marks. of the class. That brings an end to our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed our little chat with Fiona. It's certainly been a pleasure getting to know you and, and, and hearing your passion uh, for your job and your role and your school and, and education more broadly. Um, Matt, any closing thoughts? I just um, I love that, that idea that schools, you know, you, you need to be the disruptor or you will be disrupted. Yeah. Uh, I think that really resonates with us as innovators and strategists in our own, own work. Uh, and and I love that 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 notion too of of you are one person, um, you know. There's there's a reality and and that integration of you know you are the same person at home as you are in the workplace. Um, so something for us to, to reflect on. So I do do thank you, Fiona. You're most welcome. It's been a joy, and thank you for encouraging me to reflect. It's not often you get the chance to do it unless somebody's firing questions at you. So it's a good journey for me as well. Excellent. And if the audience wants to connect with you, how can they find you? They can find me at fiona.johnston at stinhildas.wa.edu.au. And I think that you play a nice game on LinkedIn as well. I do, I do. I'm a bit slap, um, bit sloppy in that space at the moment, but um, every now and then I do get on and um, put some thoughts in there. 
Excellent. Now, remember, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, please don't forget to share the love and tell a few of your colleagues that you maybe you sit next to at school or maybe even a random stranger on the bus that you should be listening to this great podcast called Ed Leaders. You can also sign up to edleaders.com.au where I'll keep you up to date with all the latest and you can follow Ed Leaders on LinkedIn where you can also connect with Matt and myself. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, Fiona, and we'll catch you next week. Go well. <laughs>